0: It's good to see everybody this morning. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read the first couple of verses there when you get to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. And that's where we'll stop reading this morning. Let's bow to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you have given. and God, we thank you for this year that we have. Uh, a brand new year to worship you, to serve you. Uh, God, to live for you. and. Um, Father, we just pray that as we enter this message this morning that you would get our our minds and our hearts off of the things that are going on in the world around us. Help us, Lord, to focus solely on you, on your word, and on what you would have for us this morning. God, we come to meet with you today. And we know that your spirit is here. We know that you're present And, God, we ask that you would help us to tune our hearts um, to you and, Lord, to receive what you would have for us to to listen to and to understand today. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For the next several Sundays, I am going to be doing something that uh, is usually looked down upon by church members and fellow pastors. Uh, and I, I guess maybe a lot of pastors have been accused of doing this in the past, but I, I'm going to be preaching someone else's sermon. I hope that you're okay with that. Um, I'm telling you this because as you listen, you're eventually going to figure out this isn't his. You know, he, our pastor's not that smart, right?
1: <laughs> and you're, you're going to
0: realize that, that this isn't his. And, uh, and you'll be right, it, it isn't. This is the greatest sermon ever presented by the greatest preacher Whoever lived, and of course that is Jesus of Nazareth. Um, it's properly called the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, the first couple of verses that we read there. It talks about him going uh, upon a mountain, and when he was said, his disciples came to him. It says in verse two, he opened his mouth and taught them, began to present this sermon uh, to them. This sermon is recorded in the Book of Matthew, chapters five. Through seven, And uh, so over the next couple of weeks, that's what we'll be traveling through is uh, Matthew chapters 5 through 7 as we look at this wonderful sermon that Jesus presented. Now this marvelous message is contained in only 111 verses. I went through and, and tried to count all those. and uh, it, it's, it's contained in only 111 verses, but volumes upon volumes have been written to expound on the truths that are found in those few verses. Yet interestingly, Matthew does not present Jesus as a preacher or as the prophet, but as Christ the King. Therefore, what we find in these chapters is not merely a sermon, but in all reality, it is the King's manifesto. Now again, your pastor's not that smart, so I had to look up what manifesto meant. A manifesto is a public declaration of intentions, opinions, objectives, or motives as one issued by a government or sovereign. I want to give that definition once again. A manifesto is a public declaration of intentions, opinions, objectives, or motives as one issued by a government or sovereign. Now, in these verses, we find Jesus, the king, who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is sovereign over all, says that he went up on a mountain and he called people to him, and of course he uh, publicly declared what the objectives and uh, the motives were of his kingdom. Now what is so confusing is that when Jesus came, he did not set up his kingdom as the Jewish people believed, that the Messiah would. And we've spoken about this several, several times, that the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah to come and set up the kingdom and sit on the throne of David and so on and so forth. And, uh, and when Jesus came, we know that He did not do that. He did not set up uh, an earthly kingdom here. He, didn't, he never sat upon the throne of David while He was here. Uh, he did not take claim of that throne. He did not dominate the world as they had supposed that He would. Yet at the same time, he did very much establish a kingdom while he was here. A kingdom that is mentioned nearly 120 times in the gospel alone. This kingdom is not one set by physical boundaries or ruled on an earthly throne. But his is a spiritual kingdom that is present in the hearts of all who believe him and submit to his rule. John the Baptist spoke of this kingdom when he cried, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the kingdom that Jesus and His disciples preached as they heralded the same news. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is the kingdom of Jesus' parables as He revealed the nature of this kingdom over and over again in His parables. He said, the kingdom is like to this. And then He would go on to explain what His kingdom was like. It's the kingdom spoken of in these chapters as King Jesus publicly delivered the intentions, objectives, and motives to both those who had entered His kingdom and those who were seeking to enter. Calvary, I want you to know that we are included in this kingdom today. And as Jesus presented this manifesto to those that were standing there with Him, uh, that day as he presented these objectives and, and these motives and these commands and, and these mandates to them. We ought today, as we listen to what Jesus said, we ought to take into complete consideration that we too are part of the kingdom of God. We too are part of this kingdom of heaven. And this is something that should not be taken lightly. For our king has given plain instructions for the thoughts, the speech, and the behavior of His people. See, this is a kingdom unlike any other on earth. And it's time for us to start shining forth the light of His kingdom. As we consider the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, there are some that will stumble at this and they will look forward into the future when Jesus is going to physically come, and He is going to rule upon the throne of David, and He is going to set up that messianic kingdom that they were hoping that He would have done back then. And some are going to say the kingdom has not come yet. But I want you to understand that the kingdom is both present now and it will be present in the future as well. Its full manifestation, its full glory, will not be seen until Christ comes again. But let us not ever be mistaken that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is right now. The kingdom is in the hearts of those who believe in Christ and those who have uh, given their lives to follow His command. This is a a spiritual reign that God has set up in the heart of his believers. And over the next several weeks, we're going to look at uh, this this mandate. We're going to look at this manifesto that Christ presented uh, to his kingdom there. But this morning, what I want us to do is just quickly, I want us to get an overview of what this message is, an overview of this sermon that Jesus presented, an overview of this uh, this address or manifesto that he delivered there uh, to the people that day. And so, as it rightly says there on the screen, we're going to be looking at the King's Sermon. And this is what it is. This is the King's Sermon. It's not something... Uh, I said I'm preaching someone else's message. It's not somebody off the Internet. It's, it's Jesus, okay, if you had not caught that already. I, I'm presenting to you Jesus' message, and uh, I'm going to try to do the very, the very, very best that I can in presenting that. The first thing I want you to understand about this kingdom that we live in, this kingdom that we're to be a part of, this kingdom that we so often are blinded to and do not pay attention to, the first thing about this kingdom is that it is a kingdom of humility. And we find that in chapter 5 and verses 1 through 12. These are probably the most well-known verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, They are called the Beatitudes. And if you just kind of skim on down uh, as, as I'm talking here, if you look on down, uh, verses 1 through 12, you're going to see uh, where he uh, begins by saying, uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then blessed are those which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And as you go on down through, these are, of course, called Beatitudes. And I believe that these Beatitudes are the framework of this whole message and, uh, and, and of course, the framework of, of all of kingdom living. And this is what Jesus began with. I think it's very interesting that when God delivered His law, and, of course, we, look, we view the law as being the first five books of Moses, but when we're talking about in a timely order, uh, when God first delivered His law, He didn't just give them a whole bunch of rules and, and deliver them this whole, this whole uh, you know, instruction book. But he began with the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments serve as a framework for all of the law, a framework for all of their commandments and all of their instructions. And as we look at this Sermon on the Mount, that's, what I, that's how I believe the Beatitudes serve as well, is as a framework for everything else that he's about to say to them. In other words, they would never get what's coming next until they got what he says here in these Beatitudes. In the the Beatitudes, we find the true nature of what it means to be a Christian, which is something that is so needed in churches today. Christians today are usually stereotyped as being arrogant or high-minded, as being snobs or hypocrites, judgmental and self-righteous. And don't take offense to that, because some of us have earned that badge, haven't we? Yet in the Beatitudes, we find the polar opposite. As we look down through those, uh, those Beatitudes, we find that we're to be poor in spirit. We find words like mourn, meek, hunger, merciful, pure, and peacemakers. What is being stressed there? Humility. The kingdom of humility. And these things are so countercultural. Uh, cultural They are so against what society believes and teaches, both then and now as well. I mean, when Jesus taught this to the people there, let's keep in mind that as Jesus taught them, you're to be poor in spirit. You are to recognize your true spiritual poverty. As He taught them that, He says, you're to be meek and you're to mourn and you're to be peacemakers and all these other things. Let's remember that in their religious world at the time, uh, you know, their, their religious people were not viewed as being humble or meek or any of those things. I mean, they were heavy and they were high-minded. You know, they, they were not humble at all. We have the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were self-righteous uh, in their own uh, you know, views of themselves and the things like that and, and that's what Jesus was dealing with and even today as we talk about the fact that Christians are those in the kingdom are supposed to be you know, all these things poor and merciful and, and uh, meek, you know, meek and all these things uh, that goes right against the culture that we live in today in today's culture if you're going to make it to the top what do you got to do? you got to step on everybody between you and it, right? If you're going to be successful, you have to keep in mind that nice guys finish last. And, and I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that has just been drilled into our minds and into our cultures. And, and so when, when they took this, if they were to take this upon themselves, if they were to take upon themselves a poor spirit, a, a meek mindset, if they were to take a, a merciful look at things, Try to be peacemakers instead of warring against others, if they were to take these things on and adopt them uh, for their own, then that was going to incite aggression against them. People were going to look at that, and and automatically, when they saw a difference in them, or automatically when they saw a, a sense of righteousness in those people's lives, they were going to take offense to it, and of course, it was going to spur on persecution And so Jesus finishes all this with verse 11 where it says, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. You know, it's sad, but when ungodly people are in the presence of godly people, we don't even have to say a word. We don't have to say anything condescending. We don't have to say anything that, uh, that looks down upon them or, or makes them feel belittled or anything like that. When an ungodly person is in the presence of someone who is truly godly, and they're in the presence of those morals, and they're in the presence of those you know, statues that they have built their lives around, they automatically feel threatened by those. You don't have to say anything. They're going to feel threatened, and they're going to lash out against it. It just happens. And I think Paul even told us, all those that live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. It's going to happen. Jesus said to his disciples, they hate me, and they're going to hate you if you live like me. And that's what Jesus gets to here. He says, basically, at the, end of these, uh, at the end of these beatitudes, if they were to take these on as themselves, it is going to incite persecution of some sort against them. And so he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see, the kingdom of God is first and foremost a kingdom of humility. I want to make clear that the humility that I'm talking about is not us making ourselves pitiful. When we talk about being humble or we talk about true humility, uh, that's not where we say, okay, uh, from now on, you know, I, I make a New Year's resolution. I'm going to be humble this year, okay? And so we, you know, put on a sad face and, and we make ourselves humble and we start trying to mourn and we start trying to be meek and, and things like that. that that's not the, the type of humility that I'm talking about here. The humility that Jesus was expecting from them, the humility that we are to take on today is where one lets go of self completely and instead allows the king to live through him. Again, the humility that I speak about is is not one where we humble ourselves, but one where we let go of self and let the spirit that dwells within to live through us. Let me tell you something. You ever heard of the fruit of the spirit? What does that mean? that mean that's a fruit that we, we pluck off of some spiritual tree out there and just try to start eating on it? No. The Spirit is within us. And when we let go of self and let Him live through us, those are things that are naturally going to come out. And so when you've let go of self and when you've let go of, of your desires and your intentions and, and your abilities and you let go of that and you let the Spirit begin to live through you, you're not going to have to try to be poor in spirit. You're not going to have to try to mourn over your wickedness or sinfulness. You're not going to have to try to be meek or be peacemakers. God is going to naturally begin to do that through you. But it's only going to be at that point where we let go of self and let Him live through us, let the King live through us. That is the humility that's presented in this kingdom. Now that leads us to the next thing. Not only is it a kingdom of humility, it is a kingdom of righteousness as Uh, We continue on. In chapter 5, verses 13 through 48, is where we find uh, this kingdom of righteousness being presented. Now, one thing you need to know right away is that this is a kingdom that expects righteousness. Are you all awake this morning? (laughs) You listen to what I'm saying? This is a kingdom of humility. But this is a kingdom that expects righteousness. We have a generation of Christians today that have been pampering sin for way too long. We have been living with this excuse that we're just human and we're going to do wrong. And so we might as well just accept that and just ask God forgiveness for it when it comes. And so we, we allow sin to enter into our lives and, and, and we pamper it and we say, okay, well, I'm not so bad because I don't do this, 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 and this. This is what's wrong with me and so I'll just live with it until you know, maybe one day I'll go to heaven and God will rid me of that thing. Listen, we have been pampering sin for far too long. And I don't care how big or little you think that sin is in your life, if it's still there, God wants it out. This is a kingdom of righteousness. And something that you're automatically going to reject when I say this. You are automatically going to spit this out and try to throw it as far away as you can. But I want you to understand, God expects righteousness out of you. God expects righteousness out of you. I believe, I stand for, and I preach forgiveness. But we have got to get past this mindset that says, God is okay with my sin. I want you to understand something very clearly today. God is forgiving God. And God is merciful. God is long-suffering. God is patient. He's kind. He's gracious. He is every bit of those things. But God is not okay with your sin. God is not in the least bit okay with your sin. As a father, my children disobey me. It happens. I I disobey my parents. You did too. And if you've got kids, they disobey you. Now, my, my child will mess up. And I forgive my child. But they never need to be confused and think, Daddy's okay when I disobey. I'm not okay with it. I never will be okay with it. I will forgive them when it happens. And we need to take that same mindset. God, You've got sin in your life. God's not okay with it. He will forgive you. God is not okay with our sin. What we find here about this kingdom is that it is a kingdom of true, inward, spiritual righteousness. Now, Jesus begins this thought by saying this. this uh, these next several verses all talk about this kingdom of righteousness. And the very first thing that he brings up is he says this. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. We find that in verses 13-13 through 16 and of course after saying you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world it says let your work so, sh- so shine before men or excuse me uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven does God expect you to do good? yes he says in verse 20 look at this chapter 5 verse 20 skip on down there with me He says, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what did the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees have? Well, they had self-righteousness. Or self-inflicted righteousness. Self-tried righteousness. But he said, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about? There's got to be a spiritual change. There's got to be a true inward spiritual righteousness take place in your life, or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He went on the next several verses and reissued several of the the greatest, as we would call them, commands of the law, the most controversial uh, commands of the law. Only here he placed placed equality between the sins of the flesh and the sins of the heart. You see, under his mandate, uh, there is adultery in the lustful look. There is murder in the angry thought. And there is theft in the covetous wish. He said over and over again, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that if a man looks with lust that the act of adultery has already been committed. The Scriptures say thou shalt not kill. Well, you know what that gave them freedom to do? That gave them freedom to do everything except kill somebody, right? They could hate them Hold grudges against them, not talk to them, do evil. Them, as long as they didn't kill them, he said. If a brother has hatred in his heart, it's the same as murder. And so he begins to bring equality between, uh, you know, of course the, the sin that is uh, done on the outside, and of course the the sins of the heart as well. I just noticed I need to catch up here a little bit. We're on the kingdom of righteousness, right? Now, to top all that off, I want you to see what he says in verse 48. At the end of all these things that he is presenting, in verse 48, he says this, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now somebody's going to say, he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean be perfect. I mean, he's, he's just saying, you know, did that, that he give any answer under that that says, oh, I don't really mean be perfect. What does he say? After all this, he says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. There's other places where he says, be ye holy, for I am holy. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to agree with it or not, whether you want to write me a nasty letter after I get through saying this or not, God expects righteousness out of us now you're going to say that's impossible it's impossible for a man to be righteous it's impossible for a man to be truly righteous it's impossible for a man to be perfect as he is perfect, well you're right with men it is But with God, all things are possible. Am I saying that we're going to reach perfection in this life? No, I didn't say that. Did I say we're ever going to be truly righteous in this life? No. But let's not allow that to cause us just to completely jump off board and just give up righteousness altogether. I believe what Jesus expects here is for us to strive for righteousness as hard and as long as we can. And, of course, that begins with humility. Now, here's what people like to do. The Beatitudes are hard, right? (laughs) The Beatitudes are tough. And so what we want to do is we want to skip past the Beatitudes and we want to start on this righteousness. Okay, God, I want to be like you and I, I want to please you with my life. And so I'm going to start trying to be righteous. And so they start trying to, uh, to be like this and, and do this and do that. But you know what this is? What, what happens is, is when we start trying to make our own righteousness or we start trying to, uh, to, to make ourselves righteous, number one, what it does is it's going to make us uh, get tired. It's going to exhaust us because we're going to realize we can't. And the next thing it's going to do is it's going to make us start being judgmental of other people. So you see, the humility has to come first. First, we have to empty ourselves. We have to allow the indwelling Spirit to begin living through us, to begin flowing through us, meekness and, and, uh, and all those different things. And once that is flowing, once He is working and flowing through us, then and only then can we ever even begin to try living up to the standard of righteousness that He's presented here. That leads us to the next thing. It's a kingdom of worship as well. As you look on through, uh, go over to chapter 6. Chapter 6 presents a kingdom of worship. Now at that time, Israel was filled with people who honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from Him. Jesus said His kingdom would not be so." In chapter 6, Jesus taught them how to truly worship God. I remember a conversation that Jesus was having with a woman at a well one time. And she asked him this question, I guess trying to trip him up. And she said, you know, our, our fathers believe that uh, you, you know we, we ought to worship here, but, but you all say you should worship there. You know, what do you say about all this? And, and Jesus says, listen, the time is coming when worship's not going to be done in this mountain or that mountain. But those that worship God will worship Him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. And I I think in these verses, in in chapter 6, Jesus tells us exactly how to do that. How to worship in spirit and in truth. First of all, He teaches them how to give. You know that your offerings, your giving... You're giving, by the way. Your tithes, it's not just so we can keep lights on here. You know? <laughs> you're giving. When we take up an offering, what you give is a part of your worship. As a matter of fact, you know, I don't preach on giving a whole lot. I, I try not to preach on giving because, hey, you can go to any other church you're going to get that almost every week. okay? <laughs> and so I, I try not to do that a whole lot. But, but listen, giving is a part of your worship. As a matter of fact, in biblical worship, there is no worship without an offering. Take that as you want it. But there is no worship without an offering. Every time they would go to worship God, they brought an offering of some, way, of, of some time. That might be an offering of money. might be an offering of service, whatever. It might be an offering of just self. Just pour it out and, and just saying, here I am, Lord. But there was always an offering. And so they needed to know how to give. If, if giving is a part of worship then he needed to teach them how to give. He does that in the first four verses of chapter 6. People needed to know how to pray. And so in verses 5 through 15, he taught them how to pray. If fasting was going to be a part of their worship, they needed to know how to do that correctly. And so in verses 16 through 18, he teaches them to fast. And then, of course, in all worship is also the, uh, the portion of service that has to take place. And so in verse 19 through the rest of the chapter, he teaches his people how to serve God in their worship. This is a kingdom of worship. And finally, last of all, it's a kingdom of judgment. In chapter 7 is where we find that. A kingdom of judgment. What I mean by a kingdom of judgment is this is a kingdom where His people are going to make judgments. Now, as soon as I said that, Somebody's going to point to chapter 7, verse 1, which says what? Judge not. That you being not judged, right? Let me explain that there is a difference between the words judgment and judgmental. Okay? I don't know how big of a difference there is, Uh, when you look at the definitions, you can go to the dictionary and look up judgmental and and judgment, and there may not be much of a difference between the definitions, but I believe that there is a vast difference between judgmental and the judgment that Christ is talking about uh, in chapter 7. And I believe that the difference is the attitude behind it. The attitude behind it. Now, regardless of all that, We cannot take two or three verses that caution us against being judgmental and do away with the multitude of others that tell us to make righteous judgment as God's people. Listen, there are a few verses. You're going to find this one. Judge not that you be not judged. We're going to find another one where it says you can't take the speck out of your brother's eye till you get the big old stick out of your own eye. Okay, we, we know that. And there are several, you know, a couple of verses that say don't be judgmental. Don't have a judgmental attitude towards others. But there are multitudes and multitudes of verses in the Bible that tell us that as God's people, we do make judgment. Chapter 7 has some very pointed verses against being judgmental of others when we haven't judged ourselves. Yet there are many, many verses in the Bible that tell us to rebuke a brother. It tells us to correct those who are wrong. It tells us to counsel those who are falling away. If you don't believe me, just sit down and read through a chapter 2 of the book of Proverbs. Read through some of Paul's letters and and you're going to find over and over again where it tells us, first of all, not only are we to, uh, if we find a brother in fault, are we to go to them and say, listen, what you're doing is wrong. A judgment is an assessment of what is right. Judgment it, you know, when we talk about judgment, it's not me saying, you're living wrong and you ought to get right. That, that's not what judgment is. Judgment is this, when we see a brother in fall, when we, someone, we see someone who's going in the wrong way or down the wrong path, and we take the truth of God's Word in humility and in a life that's been living in the Spirit, and we go to that person and we say, listen, I care about you. I love you. But you're going in the wrong direction. Here's why. God's Word. And here's what God's Word says you need to do about it. Now, in this kingdom, we have a responsibility to do that for the lost. And we have a responsibility to do that for one another. As a matter of fact, let me tell you something. I have a responsibility if I see you going astray, if I see you living in a wrong way, I have a responsibility to go to you in love and humility and say, you're wrong. As a church, we have the responsibility to do that for our church members. As witnesses for Christ, we have the responsibility to go to someone who's lost and not say, you know what, you're a filthy, stinky sinner and you're going straight to hell. That's not what I'm talking about. But to say, listen, I was in the same boat you are at one time without Christ. Whether you like it or not, I don't like it but your sin is separating you from God. You're going down a wrong path that leads to destruction. Christ has the answers for it. He died on the cross. Here's what you need to do to be saved. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. And let me tell you this, if you see me walking down a wrong path, I expect you... Now, I'm your pastor. understand that. So you come to me with respect. Okay? I don't say that for myself. I say that for the office of a pastor. Okay, You come to me in respect. You don't do it publicly. But if you see me walking in the wrong way, I expect you to come to me and correct me. According to God's Word. Now, if you have an opinion about something, you know I know what to do with that too. But, but if it's something with God's Word, that I'm walking against God's Word, and you know that, you have the responsibility to come and to talk to me personally about that so that we can get it right. Listen, it's part of it. It's part of this kingdom. How do these two come together? We see judgment has to fall in its correct order. If a person has not humbled himself, if they are not walking in righteousness, walking in the fruits of the Spirit, if they are not truly worshiping God as they should, they have no business dealing righteous judgment. No business, because it's only going to come out offensive. It's only going to come out in the wrong way. It's not going to come out in love. They have no business doing that. And that's, of course, uh, exactly where Jesus comes out. And He says, listen, you know, if you've got a, a beam in your eye, don't try to pluck a speck out of somebody else's eye. Okay? But I want you to understand that Jesus did not say to, to, you know, that we're not to correct others. Look in verse 15. He says, of chapter 7, verse 15. He says, beware of false prophets. Oh, so, excuse me, I... Hold on, I'm going to find it. I guess I had the wrong verse written down. It's in here, though. Verse 5, excuse me, verse 5, I had one before it. Verse 5, it says, Thou hypocrite, first cast the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote of thy brother's eye. Notice, he didn't say don't cast out the mode in your brother's eye. He said, first deal with yours. First take care of your own. We're not to leave a faultless brother alone and head for destruction by himself. That, that's not brotherhood. That's not Christian. But he says, first you hypocrite, you take care of your own. And then, once you've humbled yourself, once you're living in humility, once you're in the Spirit, living, filled with the Spirit, and, and once you're truly worshiping God as you should and you're where you need to be with God of course then then you have the right to go and to talk to someone else about their problems as we look through this sermon on the mount we find first of all true humility we find second of all true righteousness third we find true worship and then we find uh, the judgment that that is talked about there in chapter seven. Listen, in, in closing this morning, as we stand before this great manifesto, we find ourselves just as ho- helpless and, and as hopeless in keeping these things as the Jews did while standing before their law. I mean, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we really think about everything that Jesus said there, and, and just the, the you know the huge commandments that, that he has placed there before us. We, we're going to stand and we're going to look at that and we're going to say, this is impossible. I, I can't do this. I can't be truly humble as God was talking about. I can't live uh, a life that is righteous like he's talking about. I can't worship, uh, you know, the way that Jesus was saying there. And I definitely am not fit to do the last part that he talks about in this sermon. You know, we stand there and, and we recognize that we are helpless against this. Many have strived and exhausted themselves in trying to follow this mandate only to realize their own inability. But thank God. Paul showed us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, that it's not in us, but it's Christ in us. As we go through this Sermon on the Mount, you're going to find some things that are going to be very hard for you to do. And you're going to find as you start, hopefully you're going to start trying to apply this stuff to your life. And as you start beginning to apply some of these things to your life, as it goes on, you're going to find it getting tougher and tougher and tougher for you to do. But that's where it all comes back to what I said at the very beginning. It's not you. It's Christ in you. It's going to, have to, it's going to t- take an emptying of yourself and emptying of you and allowing the indwelling Spirit to live through you. I will say that unfortunately today, the majority of Christians, the, the, the majority of church members that sit on, on these pews, and yes, possibly even the majority of you, are not living a life that is led by the Spirit of God. You're living a life led by emotion led by material things, led by whatever it may be, but you're not living a life that is led by the Spirit. How do I know that? I think if you were living a life that is led by the Spirit, we'd be seeing a whole different service going on today, right? 2014 is time right now before we take another step in this year, before we enter another day in this year, it's time for us right now to empty ourselves, to realize that if we're going to do for God this year, it's not going to be us that does it. It's going to have to be God in us, and we empty ourselves today, and we say, "God, I trust you as Savior." The Bible says that you're living in my heart. I want you to live through me, through my life. I want you to implement these things into my life because I can't. It's time for a surrender to take place in your life this morning if you're here and you do not know Christ as your savior that's the very first thing that needs to happen
1: for you to realize
0: that you are spiritually poor but that Christ has paid the price for your sin except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees you will not enter the kingdom of heaven your physical outward attempts at righteousness are not going to be enough there has to be an inward spiritual change to take place, and that's through salvation. That's through trusting Christ as Savior and repenting of your sin and coming to Him for salvation. If that needs to take place in your life this morning, well, whatever God is working on your heart about today, I'm going to ask that you act on it. This is the first service of this year, the first church service, first worship service that we've had in this year, and I, I, I want you to surrender to God. You don't have to make a resolution. Just make a decision this morning that you're going to follow him. As we stand, as the music begins.